I'd like to welcome you this afternoon. It's pleasing to see a number of faces turn up here. I know that some of people are still probably tied up in potlucks. I know I was at a church that had a potluck this morning, um, and it wasn't this one. So, And I know there was a potluck here as well, so we probably will have a few more trickle in. But thank you for taking time on this lovely Sabbath afternoon uh, to come and uh, listen to Nathan this is our last session in the education meetings for this year, and I just want to thank you on behalf of Arthur and myself for your support over the year um, of the various people that we have had speak to you. We're in the process of planning uh, sessions for next year. If you have any brilliant ideas or things that you feel that we should be covering in these sessions, please come and talk to Arthur or myself. We're interested in ideas. Uh, we have a couple up our sleeve right now that uh, we're just negotiating some dates, uh, but we are certainly interested in what you want to hear as well, because these sessions are not for us, they're for all of you uh, in terms of learning. Nathan has picked a very challenging topic today. Nathan is talking about Ellen White, a voice for justice, question mark. And he tells me that some of the advertising had the question mark and some of the advertising didn't. But the question mark was intended to be there. Most of you will know Nathan as an editor with Science Publishing. Nathan has always provoked me with his writing. I've always enjoyed interacting with it. Sometimes he writes uh, things that I disagree with and that's okay. Um, but he makes me think, and that, I think, is important for all of us to have something that provokes and makes us think. Nathan has written five books, I'm told, one of which has just been published in German. And he tells me he's working on two separate master's degrees at the moment, and I have to tell you, I don't know how he manages to do that working full-time, because I'm struggling to write my dissertation in one degree uh, full time while I'm working full time so Nathan hats off to you trying to make that happen but we want to welcome you this afternoon and before I get you up to speak I'll just invite God's presence in this room Father we just want to thank you that we can come here this afternoon we thank you that you've given us minds to think and ask questions we thank you for the sunshine that's outside after the cold day yesterday and we thank you that you are a God of justice. Lord, I just pray that your presence would be here as Nathan speaks and that you would uh, enlighten him and help us to understand what we should hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and... Um, whatever else goes with it. Thank you for your welcome. Thank you for your attendance and your thoughts. Um, so I'm hoping that you'll all have a go at me at the end of it uh, in, a ni in the nicest possible way and we'll see what we can do with that. Firstly, let me give you a little bit of background of how I got onto this topic. And it wasn't one that I particularly chose. It was one that formed as I've been working on some other things. I think that the topic of justice as it's represented in the Bible is one of the most important things in the Bible and one of the most overlooked things in, in our 
part of the Christian community. That's a pretty bold kind of statement, uh, but I think as a church we still don't get it. We still don't get the importance of justice as a way of understanding God, as a way of relating to the world around us, and perhaps even as a way of conducting our business as a church. Somebody counted 2,103 verses in the Bible that talk about God's concern for justice and his concern for the poor and the marginalised and the forgotten and the left behind and all of those kind of people. But when you look at our priorities as a church community, I think we don't reflect that overwhelming emphasis that comes through throughout the Bible. So it's been one of my particular endeavours to try and make some noise on that, to try and raise this as an issue that our church should be uh, more interested in. And I've had various discussions about this with good people in all sorts of places and, uh, and things. And one of the places that I've talked about it at some length is with some of my friends at ADRA and um, talked to them about, you know, what can we do to actually get this into the consciousness of our church Uh, and also that it's not just an ADRA thing. I think one of the risks we have with ADRA is that we have outsourced our concern for justice to a nice little agency on the side, and that means the rest of us don't have to worry about it much. And that's a problem. So, the good folks at ADRA Australia actually came up with some money, which is a wonderful thing, and they basically sponsored me to embark on a research project with a view to coming up with a Sabbath school lesson quarterly on these topics. And that was something that I'd had a kind of interest in doing, but the fact that they came up with some money allowed me to have some time that I could take out of the office and spend some serious time focused on this and writing up what is a pretty big research project. So we got to that point, and that was a good thing. Then my good friend Cliff Goldstein, editor of the Sabbath School Lesson Quarterly, I was having lunch with him somewhere, I think when he was in Melbourne a couple of years ago, and I talked, talked him through the project. I said, this is what I want to do. And he said, it sounds interesting, but I'm not convinced. I said, well, let me write it and I'll convince you. And so he said, well, I'm not making you any promises, write it for me and give it to us. But one of the challenges that he put to me was that we had to make it relevant to the entire world. So that it's not just something where we're talking to you know, well-off people in developed countries, but as the uh, Sabbath school lessons are studied all over the world, it can also be read under a tree in Africa by people we would consider the poor people of the world. And what does, you know, how can we approach some of these issues in that way? And my response was partly a smart aleck response, but it was actually the core of how I answered that challenge, was to read the Bible. We read the Bible in all the cultures of the world if we simply start at Genesis and work our way to Revelation and see where these topics pop up, then perhaps that's a way to get around some of these issues. So not so bold as to make the claim, as some do, that we were simply going to let the Bible speak for itself, rather to read the Bible with a particular eye for these issues all the way through. The next challenge came in a slightly different form. For those of you who are familiar with the Sabbath School Lesson Quarterly, 
Every week at the moment ends with a couple of quotes from Ellen White. And that's kind of, you know, it's not a bad model for, I guess, our church's approach to the interaction between the Bible and Ellen White, is to spend five days studying the Bible and then get some supplementary and confirmatory and perhaps application kind of guidelines from Ellen White. But this was an area that I was a bit less comfortable, having not spent a whole lot of time looking uh, in her writings for these kind of things. And then just as I was starting out on this writing project, uh, as different winds blew through the corridors of the General Conference building, the um, directive came from through Cliff to that there'd been the suggestion, and suggestion is probably a term used advisedly, that there should be more Ellen White material used in the Sabbath school lessons from this point on. And so I had to turn that up a notch further. And so this background explains my approach to this particular aspect of the research project, in which my exploration has been based primarily on the study of the Bible and then reading Ellen White's writings as a kind of commentary and you know, as a way of exploring and putting some of the biblical material into an Adventist context. I guess it's kind of helpful to, for some, I guess, to trans translate the Bible by virtue of some of our Adventist pioneers uh, in a way that says, well, maybe this way of reading the Bible isn't so foreign. So to finish this part of the story before jumping into the, um, the I guess, my research and discovery, um, after quite a few interesting email conversations, well, firstly, I submitted the completed manuscript in um, February this year, and after some toing and froing and some feedback from various committees at the General Conference. The manuscript now has been initially accepted and scheduled for second quarter 2016. So we have to wait with um, patient excitement or perhaps, um, perhaps a better term might be excited impatience for its potential brutal editorial process and then hopefully its publication use in churches around the world. We'll see. We'll keep you posted. So back to my challenge of searching the writings of Ellen White for hints of justice or for insights into what the Bible has to say about justice. And let me admit that first I tried to cheat. I contacted some of the other writers and voices around justice and poverty issues within Adventism said, if you, can you give me some ins for this, for finding my way into Ellen White's writings? Uh, among those were some of the guys that run the Adventist activism group, Facebook group and blogs and some of those things. And they were able to point me to a few things, but they didn't have a whole lot to offer. They, you know, everybody has their favourite quote, but um, you know, there wasn't that kind of comprehensive overview that I was looking for. In a similar vein, I picked up the 1952 compilation Welfare Ministry, once again, looking for an entry point into her writing and thinking on these topics. And at first reading, the introductory, introductory rationale in the compiler's foreword is both insipid and insightful, claiming to present, and this is the quote, spirit of prophecy instruction in the delicate work of reaching hearts and winning souls through neighbourly kindness. This is a type of soul-winning ministry with which many Seventh-day Adventists are but casually acquainted 
yet a work ordained by God as the most appropriate means of bringing Christ and Christianity to the attention of the peoples of the world. While the work described in the book actually goes beyond what we might consider neighbourly kindness, in these words are an admission that even in 1952, someone recognised that perhaps there was something in Ellen White's writings and ministry that had been overlooked by the church that aspired to follow in the large footsteps left by her and others among the church pioneers. It suggests a similar silence to that explored by Zach Plantic in his book The Silent Church, which traces the disappearance of social and justice issues from the Adventist consciousness over the past century. As George Knight described and endorsed in his review of Plantec's study, he correctly points out that Adventism has generally been silent on social issues in the 20th century, even though its pioneers were far from silent. And a third part, I guess, that prompted my thinking in this direction came with a guided tour of Sunnyside in March this year with a group of American visitors and the reminder that I received in that, on that afternoon of the reputation that Ellen White developed during her time living in the Kurenbong area for her works of charity to help the sick and the suffering and the poor. And some of this work is actually detailed in the appendix to Welfare Ministry, demonstrating the personal investment that she had in caring for the needs of others in the name of Christ. And while even the importance of these activities may have been overlooked in times, in, at times in our history, in our zeal for preaching the message, charity or even welfare ministry is not something that is likely to be missed from the extensive writings or life of almost any Christian leader, author or historical figure. While its practice might be another question, some degree and form of benevolence will invariably be encouraged and this focus is certainly to be found in White's, White's descriptions and injunctions for practical Christian living. But a couple of notes before we go further. I've quote, in what I've prepared, I apologise in advance that there is quite a deal of quoted material in what follows, but I've not wanted to shorten some of the relevant quotations from Ellen White's writings too heavily, so as to offer some of the context to these statements, helping us to appreciate the breadth of her reflections on these topics. And in doing so, I hope I haven't succumbed to that great Adventist tradition of do-it-yourself E.G. White compilations employed to feed one's hobby horses and bludgeon others. And, of course, you know, maybe I think I can get away with it because I've dressed it in some kind of semi-academic garb to justify my use of the material in this way. But I think there are two things that guard against this. First, maintaining a consciousness of the context rather than recklessly picking sentences from diverse sources and also the fact that it's, if you do a search for justice, you know, a word search or an index search for the word justice, it won't really help you a whole lot. So you have to dig deeper into the context because when we're talking about when a sort of old-fashioned kind of term like neighbourly kindness or benevolence or some of these things, we need to look a little bit deeper into what is actually being said there. Most of the quoted material also comes from core texts, such as the Conflict of the Ages series, particularly Patriarchs and Prophets and the Desire of Ages, as well as the Ministry of Healing and Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, among others. Second, I see the strong biblical focus that was at the centre of this original research project as providing a helpful framework to this exploration of Ellen White's writings. So beginning with the idea of charity... 
Of course, the ministry and teachings of Jesus are the key source and motivation for acts of charity. In one of Ellen White's best-known statements, she explained it like this in a passage that fits well with the earlier statement from the Forward to Welfare Ministry. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Saviour mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. The statement continues. There is need of coming close to people by personal effort. If less time were given to sermonising and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing and the bereaved comforted, the ignorant instructed, the inexperienced counselled. We are to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. As was common in Jesus' teaching, the harshest criticism, of course, is aimed at those who claim to be religious but show little concern or interest in the suffering of others. Commenting upon Jesus' parable, White brings out this point. In the story of the Good Samaritan, Christ illustrates the nature of true religion. He shows that it consists not in systems, creeds or rites, but in the performance of loving deeds and bringing the greatest good to others in genuine goodness. Similarly, Christian compassion and action are again described as both key to authentic faith and evangelistic success in expounding the Sermon on the Mount. Commenting particularly on what was, has become known as the Golden Rule in Matthew 7:12, White urges the love of God as the foundation for love for one another, particularly as a kind of practical truth. Search heaven and earth and there is no truth revealed more powerful than that which is made manifest in works of mercy to those who need our sympathy and aid. This is the truth as it is in Jesus. When those who profess the name of Christ shall practice the principle of the golden rule, the same power will attend the gospel as in apostolic times. This work of Jesus has continued in the life of the early church. It's held up as a model for practical Christian living. Quoting again, The work which the disciples did, we are also to do. Every Christian is to be a missionary. In sympathy and compassion, we are to minister to those in need of help, seeking with unselfish earnestness to lighten the woes of suffering humanity. We are to feed the hungry, clothe the naked and comfort the suffering and afflicted. We are to minister to the despairing and to inspire hope in the hopeless. The love of Christ manifested in unselfish ministry will be more effective in reforming the evildoer than will, we, than will be, be the sword or the court of justice. And preeminently, such benevolent action is a way of walking in the footsteps of Jesus, continuing his ministry in our world and encountering the reality of who Jesus was and is. One of my favourite quotations from Ellen White coming from Desire of Ages Many feel that it would be a great privilege to visit the scenes of Christ's life on earth, to walk where he trod, to look upon the lake beside which he loved to teach and the hills and valleys on which his eyes so often rested. But we need not go to Nazareth, to Capernaum or to Bethany in order to walk in the steps of Jesus. We shall find his footprints beside the sickbed, in the hovels of poverty, in the crowded alleys of the great city and in every place where there are human hearts in need of consolation. In doing as Jesus did when on earth, we shall walk in his steps. As I've already commented, such calls to charity, almsgiving, benevolence are not unique among either historic or contemporary Christian voices. And these quoted are among many that could have been sampled from White's writings. The call to Christian charity is clear and unmistakable. It is considered a Christian devotion and duty 
as well as an effective, perhaps even the most effective form of evangelism. Even at this level, Ellen White's insights are valuable. For example, her counsel on assisting the poor in the Ministry of Healing include many principles that would be well regarded in development and social work today, including respect for the dignity of the persons helped. Where possible, charity of the poor should not merely be handouts and emergency relief, but rather should be involved delivering assistance in ways that help those in poverty to help themselves and contribute to their own uplift. Such advice is consistent with many accepted models of sustainable individual and community development practice today. And here we have begun to move to a deeper focus on justice, beginning to acknowledge the need not merely to provide handouts and other acts of charity, good though they be and important in their place, but to reorder social and even economic relations in such a way as to create greater equality of opportunity, greater access to the goods of society, greater justice to those marginalised and excluded by the current disordering of these relationships and the oppression exercised for the profit of a few against the many. As one of the core aspects of injustice, and in this case economic injustice, a broader understanding of poverty is helpful here. Poverty is not merely the absence or short supply of money, food or other commodities that are necessary to meet everyday needs. These are the result of poverty, although often used as measures of poverty. Instead, poverty is the lack of resources, opportunities and choices. Because of the imperatives of poverty, it is a focus on merely surviving today rather than building lives in ways that can be more resilient to the inevitable setbacks and disasters of life. Poverty is oppression of mind, body and spirit. It tends to crush hope, energy and endeavour. And White demonstrates an understanding of these underlying causes of poverty and the related social ills. Commenting on the social and economic model God presented to the Israelites after the Exodus, which we'll explore further in a moment, she reflects that this model offered both the means and the incentive for a useful, industrious and self-supporting life. And no devising of men has ever improved upon that plan. To the world's departure from it, from it is owing to a large degree the poverty and wretchedness that exist today. It's a natural progression for those concerned with helping, healing and lifting up those in need, the sick and the suffering, even if only initially in practical but has, haphazard ways in an occasional and circumstantial good Samaritan, that this will lead to questioning of the social and economic factors that perpetuate this disadvantage despite the sometimes repeated acts of charity and truly good intentions. Christian sociologist Tony Campolo explains it this way, missionary work usually starts as acts of charity, but the more you learn about how political and economic institutions oppress and exploit the poor, the more you realise that charity is not enough. Justice is also needed. And it is this deeper focus on justice that I was looking for in my reading of Ellen White particularly her commentary on the Bible's repeated calls for justice, for preaching the good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom for the captive, giving sight to the blind and freeing the downtrodden from their oppressors. And I believe I found that focus in her writings, albeit too often overlooked or unexplored in the Adventist church's history and practice, and sometimes perhaps often masked behind seemingly more innocuous phrasing such as describing acts of neighbourly kindness or courtesy and benevolence even when describing more profound acts of justice. So if we look at the biblical foundations of faithful justice, we begin, of course, at creation. 
In this act, Ellen White recognises the fullness of blessing to all created beings, which includes the provision of God for, of, for all human needs and the responsibility God placed upon human beings for the stewardship of this world and its resources. She writes, If men would do their duty as faithful stewards of their Lord's good, there would be no cry for bread, none suffering in destitution, none naked and in want. It is the unfaithfulness of men that brings about the state of suffering in which humanity is plunged. God has made men his stewards and he is not to be charged with the sufferings, the misery, the nakedness and the want of humanity. The Lord has made ample provision for all. In this context, White also recognises the familial duty of human beings to each other as sons and daughters of the Creator God. In a statement that is repeated in both the positive and the negative, she emphasises the interconnectedness of humanity, both for good and ill. The ministry of healing, she writes, in, in the ministry of healing, she writes, we are all woven together in the web of humanity. The evil that befalls any part of the great human brotherhood brings peril to all. By contrast, in Patriarchs and Prophets, in discussing the social ordering of the newly founded Israelite nation, she puts it this way, we're all woven together in the great web of humanity and whatever we can do to benefit and uplift others will reflect in blessings upon ourselves. In Ellen White's assessment, this commonality of human and social well-being was built into the social and economic ordering detailed in the laws of the Israelites established after the exodus from Jesus. She makes a very telling statement. There is nothing after their recognition of the claims of God that more distinguishes the laws given to Moses or given by Moses than the liberal, tender and hospitable spirit enjoined towards the poor. Drawing from the biblical text, she describes how the poor were to be treated with dignity and benevolence, never needing to beg or to go hungry. But this social ordering goes a significant step further. In the institution of the sabbatical years and the years of Jubilee, the Israelite nation was to have a mechanism to reset God's provision for all his people. She writes, The regulations that God established were designed to promote social equality, the provisions of the sabbatical year and the jubilee would, in a great measure, set right that which during the interval had gone wrong in the social and political economy of the nation. Even these provisions were for the equal benefit of, the, of all in society, both rich and poor, cultivating benevolence, fostering goodwill, as well as promoting social order and stable government. But perhaps the most insightful and and justice-focused examination of the Mosaic laws comes in Ellen White's deep reading of the Ten Commandments, the foundational laws of the new nation. While many of these commandment statements are brief, we are not allowed to underestimate the breadth of their impact and their comprehensiveness as, the, as laws of life. For example, the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder... Summarize, is summarised and, inc and includes in White's reading all acts of injustice that tend to shorten life as well as a selfish neglect of caring for the needy or suffering. Similarly, the prohibition against stealing condemns, and this is quoting, slave dealing and forbids wars of context. It requires the payment of just debts and wages as well as prohibiting every attempt to advantage oneself by the ignorance, weakness or misfortune of another. That's a pretty big call. 
Also among the Ten Commandments, White identifies the Sabbath as particularly relevant to the poor, suffering and oppressed. Not only are these people entitled to a day of rest in in terms of the commandment, a day on which even their legitimate masters were not able to demand work or other service from them, there is a duty on Sabbath keepers to use this holy time to work for those in need, which is in accord with both the commandment and the ministry of Jesus. Ellen White explained it like this, According to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath was dedicated to rest and religious worship. All secular employment was to be suspended, but works of mercy and benevolence were in accordance with the purpose of the Lord. To relieve the afflicted, to comfort the sorrowing, is a labour of love that does honour to God's holy day. Commenting on this statement, Dwight Nelson, in his book Pursuing the Passion of Jesus, urges that Sabbath afternoons are a gift from God through you to the poor, the suffering, the lonely and the needy. As the biblical narrative progresses and the people of Israel veer away from God's plan for their society, Ellen White still recognised the responsibilities for justice on their kings, emphasising that those who fill such roles in society, and quoting, are appointed to act as judges under him, meaning that they hold their position and conduct their work as representatives, but also as subordinates of God. And when they fail in this way, prophetic voices are raised to call people back to God's plan, for society. And while I was surprised by her seemingly only minor engagement with the focus on justice and poverty in the writings of the Hebrew prophets, White at least recognised the passionate concerns about injustice that so marked the message of these prophets. In Prophets and Kings she writes, against the marked oppression, the flagrant injustice, the unwanted luxury and extravagance, the shameless feasting and drunkenness, the gross licentiousness and debauchery of their age, The prophets listed their voices, lifted their voices, but in vain were their protests, in vain the denunciation of sin. But their message was not only directed against failing kings of long ago, she adds, the call of the prophets should echo in our ears and hearts today. These plain utterances of the prophets should be received by us as the voice of God to every soul. We should lose no opportunity of performing deeds of mercy, of tender forethought and Christian courtesy for the burdened and the oppressed. In the ministry and teaching of Jesus, White sees the same impulses, undoing the, justice of the injustices of the leaders of the day and calling his disciples to new kinds and qualities of social relationships. In his healing ministry, she identifies acts of justice as well as reproof to those who practised injustice. She writes... Every miracle that Christ performed was a sign of his divinity. He was doing the very work that had been foretold of the Messiah. But to the Pharisees, these works of mercy were were a positive offence. The Jewish leaders looked with heartless indifference on human suffering. In many cases, their selfishness and oppression had caused the affliction that Christ relieved. Thus, his miracles were to them a reproach. And of course, they were also an act of justice. In Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, Ellen White also identifies this duty in Jesus' teaching. She writes, Christ tears away the wall of partition, the self-love, the dividing prejudice of nationality and teaches a love for all the human family. He lifts men from their narrow circle that their selfishness prescribes. He abolishes all territorial lines and artificial distinctions of society. He makes no difference between neighbours and strangers, friends and enemies. He teaches teaches us to look upon every needy soul as our neighbour and the world as our field. 
Ellen White recognises that the early church was configured in the same, on the same principles of piety and justice that were to guide the rulers of God's people in the time of Moses and David and urges that the gospel is as centred in Jesus reorders and re-knits the web of humanity in which we are created and now recreated. Quoting Galatians 3.28, there is no, neither Jew nor Greek and that kind of thing. Whatever the difference in religious belief, a call from suffering humanity must be heard and answered. They may be ragged, uncouth and seemingly in, every, seemingly in every way unattractive, yet they are God's property. They have been bought with a price. They are, precious in his, they are as precious in his sight as we are. They are members of God's great household and Christians as his stewards are responsible for them. So on this foundation of biblical understanding, it's hardly surprising but again, often overlooked or misunderstood, that Ellen White, by her actions and voice, did address issues of injustice, poverty and oppression in her day. And while I have not, as part of this research project, explored in depth the specific issues she addressed, she advocates the reform of society in relation to temperance issues, uh, poverty and particularly contentious issue of her time and place, the late 19th century United States, of slavery. And she counselled and urged the use of our voice and our vote and our influence to further these, the, the righteousness in these issues. At times she even adopts the positions that would continue to be politically controversial today. For example, in the Review and Herald in 1896 she wrote this, The American nation owes a debt of love to the coloured race and God has ordained that they should make that they should make restitution for the wrong they have done them in the past. Those who have taken no active part in enforcing slavery upon the coloured people are not relieved from the responsibility of making special efforts to remove, as far as possible, the sure result of their enslavement. That's a big call. Of course, Ellen White was also a person of her times, but even her acceptance of the separation of the work and churches among blacks in the American South was presented as a necessary evil, not how the church should or the world should be. And this pragmatic approach was taken as a temporary solution to a specific problem in a particular region of the country, as Samuel London summarises her approach in Seventh-day Adventists and the Civil Rights Movement. Ellen White's writing and practice was aimed to lift up the poor and oppressed, working to undo the injustice in society and her extensive and practical guidelines in a number of chapters of the Ministry of Healing demonstrate the depth of her thinking to this end. In her estimation, a just life was comprised of intentional actions as well as refraining from injustice and refusing to take advantage of those who are less fortunate. She says, God's word sanctions no policy that will enrich one class by the oppression and suffering of another. He who would take advantage of another's misfortunes in order to benefit himself or who seeks to profit himself through another's weakness or incompetence is a transgressor of both, transgressor of both the principles and of the precepts of the word of God. Even the justice aspects of temperance and health reform, recognising the debilitating, debilitating and disadvantageous effects of poor health practices, often particularly on those who are already socially and economically disadvantaged, are worthy of mention and greater exploration. 
In her essay in Eating and Believing and Interdisciplinary Perspectives on Vegetarianism and Theology, Samantha Jane Calvert, Calvert of the University of Birmingham acknowledges this aspect of the Adventist focus on health as expressed in Ellen White's health writings. And this is an aspect of the motivation and practice of the health message that should not be overlooked. At its best, the Adventist focus on health is not only about personal holiness, if it is about that at all, but about working to give effect to more of God's plan for a just and healthy world. By health reform and medical work, as well as the work of education, Adventists have worked to change lives, lift up the oppressed and transform society, but have often not seen this as the work of justice or described it as such. In a similar way, a recent book published by Oxford University Press, The Christian Consumer, Living Faithfully in a Fragile World, by Laura Hartman, credits Ellen White with guiding the Seventh-day Adventist Church toward an approach to living that by Sabbath-keeping, health reform and other lifestyle practices appreciates the value of justice and liberation and continues to shape their consumption habits in ways that reduce their environmental impact. These are aspects of the Adventist lifestyle that deserve further exploration, which we're seeing from, some very, seeing from various sources. And Sigvi Tonstad's The Lost Meaning of the Seventh Day is one recent and worthwhile example of this. In portraying faith as a holistic lifestyle, Ellen White repeatedly pointed to the central standard for faithful Christian action, decrying anything less in harsh terms. She writes, The standard of the golden rule is the true standard of Christianity. Anything short of it is deception. A religion that leads men to place a low estimate upon human beings, who Christ has esteemed of such value as to give himself for them, a religion that would lead us to be careless of human needs, sufferings or rights, is a spurious religion. In slighting the claims of the poor, the suffering and the sinful, we are proving ourselves traitors to Christ. It is because men take upon themselves the name of Christ while in life they deny his character that Christianity has so little power in the modern world. Sorry, in the world. In his eulogy given at Ellen White's funeral in July 1915, then General Conference President A.G. Daniel summarised this aspect of her life's work in startlingly strong terms. He said this, The social status of the human family is not lost sight of. Basically giving a summary of her life's work and writings. The social status of the human family is not lost sight of. Slavery, the caste system, unjust racial prejudices, the oppression of the poor, the neglect of the unfortunate... These are all set forth as unchristian and a serious menace to the well-being of the human race and as evils which the Church of Christ is appointed by her Lord to overthrow. It's the language of revolution, but perhaps it should not be so startling considering the breadth of her treatment of these issues and the Bible's focus on God's compassionate concern for the poor and the oppressed. So what should all of this mean for the Adventist Church today? We keep hearing a lot about revival. And there's a part of the old, the Hebrew prophets that Ellen White actually didn't skip over. From my reading of Ellen White, I believe that she would direct this impulse, to, impulse towards revival towards Isaiah 58. She writes, 
The whole of the 58th chapter of Isaiah is to be regarded as a message for this time to be given over and over again. Speaking through Isaiah, just as a refresher on Isaiah 58, God responds to his people who are in search of revival. And he says, The kind of worship I want from you is to serve those who need your help, to be voice and activist for justice in the world, to help people to be released from the things that hold them back, to help them live as freely as possible, to feed the hungry, to provide shelter to the homeless and those who need it, share clothes with those who don't have enough. Even if we have only a little, it might be more than someone else has and God calls on us to be generous with any resources we have to those around us who we can help. Such, ner- such service is not merely a nice thing to do. It's not something that just part of the church is into or some young people might get off on. It's not something that just Adra does. These verses describe it as a way to worship God. It's not the only way to worship God, but speaking through Isaiah to his revival-focused people, God urged them to try this seemingly different approach to worship. In God's view, it seems this form of worship might be preferable to some of the people's more traditional worship practices, especially if that worship is conducted while ignoring the needs of others or actually contributing to their oppression. Worship is not inwardly focused, but something that brings blessings to all those around the worshippers. It is remarkable that the spirit of Jesus and the heart of faithfulness to God are so other-focused that even our spiritual renewal is not about us, reaching out instead to the poor, the oppressed, the hurting and the hungry. As the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary puts it, the true purpose of religion is to release men from their burdens of sin, to eliminate intolerance and oppression and to promote justice, liberty and peace. In Isaiah 58, 8-12, God promises blessings in response to this form of worship. In effect, God is saying that if the people were less focused on themselves, they would find God working with them and through them to bring healing and restoration. This was the revival the people were seeking, a renewal of their hope and purposes found in God with a real sense of his presence in their lives and community. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of, God, of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here I am. Ellen White urged that the principles and actions described in Isaiah 58 were important for the church she cared about. I have been instructed to refer our people to the 58th chapter of Isaiah, she wrote in 1908. Read this chapter carefully and understand the kind of ministry that will bring life into our churches. The work of the gospel is to be carried by our liberality as well as by our labours. When you meet suffering souls who need help, give it to them. When you find those who are hungry, feed them. In doing this, you'll be working in lines of Christ's ministry. The Master's holy work was a benevolent work. Let our people everywhere be encouraged to have a part in it. If we are serious about following Jesus, we'll also focus on others and their needs. If we are serious about revival, we'll be serious about justice. If we walk in the footsteps of Ellen White as one of our church's true pioneers, we will be voices and activists for justice in our churches, our communities and our world. Living in the best of our tradition, we will do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Thank you.
our usual practice, we invite you to ask Nathan some questions at this point. I think Nathan's quite capable of handling him <laughs> himself. Um, but I'm sure you'll, that will have raised lots of questions in your mind. I know it raised some in mine. Cool. <laughs> um, so anyone who would like to start uh, asking Nathan a question this, this afternoon. And I can't promise you any answers, but we're happy to have a conversation. Thank you, Nathan, for your concise presentation. That was very good. I wonder whether you give any thought as to why the Adventist Church, at the level of individuals and as an institution, has largely walked away from the idea of justice in our minds. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, there's probably a multiplicity of reasons. And of course, some of them are cultural, some of them are theological, um, some of them are our own self-centeredness. I think, uh, I don't have a complete answer, but I think I, I'd be, I'm going to throw out a couple of ideas that are prompted by the question. I think partly because it's hard, partly because we're... Uh, nice middle-class church that doesn't like getting particularly dirty and taking too many risks, uh, particularly as we see it practiced in the Western world. Um, and I think we... There, there, there's an ongoing tension, of course, in the Adventist setting between our, our, our sense of, you know, our Adventistness and our focus on getting out of here and um, you know, living happily ever after somewhere else, which is not particularly biblical, but is a nice selling point. Um, and I think because of that and perhaps you know, the kind of people we get are, as far as a church goes, are the product of the way we evangelise and the way we evangelise is that's what we sell people. Uh, so we yeah, for, for a variety of reasons, we haven't really engaged with the... I, I mean, I would get it right back to the core of what the Gospel is truly about. When we go back to Jesus' description of what the Gospel is, what the good news is, it's something quite different to just preaching a sermon and um, you know, showing some PowerPoint slides of angels. So we um, need to... You know, where I'm at and where Joe talked about this morning, having the privilege to listen to, to her preach this morning, a fundamental rethinking of what of our Adventist identity and what the gospel is truly about is, you know, that's the groundwork to, to begin with. Now that's a huge task and we probably won't get through that this afternoon. Um, but, you know, and that's where it comes back to the initial impulse for my thinking in this direction to say, Let's try as a community of faith to spend some time looking at what an overwhelmingly recurrent issue and impulse and urge this is throughout the Bible. Because if we say we take the Bible seriously, it's not something that we can continue to, to ignore. Yes, sir? Uh, I appreciated your looking at the, the health ministry as providing an extra facet to the church's um, endeavours in social justice. Um, I lived 
for a couple of years in Lismore, which is full of health things everywhere. Every cafe has a million different organic this and that that don't have ingredients in it, and, it, and it's very much aware um, that partly influenced by the hippie culture up there, but the, the health message had been, um, in, in some ways, has been championed more by the secular world than by Adventism. And we don't seem to be leaders in the stands. Um, We're working on it. Working, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but I wonder if the same happened with social justice. Perhaps the church is less... Um, it, it's not so... It's less of a challenge, so we we are less stimulated to get involved with the issues because secular society as a whole is seeming to be trying to address the issues. And I think that's one of our abiding problems is our suspicion of the wider world and if somebody else is doing that, then then we either can't do it or we even shouldn't do it. Um, and one of the reasons I think that us getting more involved in issues of justice in the world will be that it naturally gets us connected with our communities. That it will be the thing that, you know, and even Monty Selin's um, research that he published, and I can't remember the name of the book, a couple of years ago where he looked at churches that grow and churches that don't in northeastern United States. Those that are involved in their community grow, those that aren't don't. And um, yeah, I see that if we re somehow rekindle a passion for these issues, it will naturally force us out of our churches and into the communities to partner with other people that are working with these issues, as well as working with people who are victims or that need to be helped or however you want to talk about that. Um, we will, you know, that would completely transform our church and our attitude to so many of the little issues that we spend so much time and energy on. So, yeah, there's a lot of scope for more thinking in that and also more working in that. Yeah. I wonder if perhaps a reading of Ellen White as a whole, we get the sense that Jesus is really important to her and perhaps as a church we lost sight of that in terms of we want to think about we've got our 27 fundamentals right and that's the Old Testament problem and our problem too. Jesus was part of who we were. Jesus naturally just reached out to people and we would naturally do that too. We focus more on understanding who Jesus is in us rather than getting that theology right. Not that that's wrong. Yeah, to get back to that thing, to you know, mercy and benevolence, this is the truth as it is in Jesus. Yeah. Jesus makes a difference. Jesus isn't a nice club that we're a part of. Jesus isn't my boyfriend, as a lot of the worship songs would put it. Um, Jesus is our prophet in this sense um, that pushes us to live differently. John, now I'm nervous. No, I'm not. <laughs> Thank you for your exciting presentation. I will appreciate it. I have a question for you. In your research and reflections, uh, do you see any correlation between Ellen White's develop, uh, developing great controversy theme and her sort of uh, growth in the awareness of social justice and that emphasis that you're stressing? Because a lot of the quotations that you have shared with us, I think, come from her later writings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I'm saying here, you know, she develops a great controversy theme. And then, do you see any correlation between that emphasis that she places on social justice and so on? Mm. Having heard you present on those topics, I 
even had some of that progression idea in the back of my mind when thinking along some of these things. Um, and I think when we're getting towards some of the stronger statements that, we, that I quoted towards the end, that she you know, even uses that language of, well, you know, to quote the, the Daniel's quote, to overthrow, you know, that's getting to great controversy kind of language. Uh, certainly I see, and certainly if, we, if you read the, you know, her extensive uh, treatment of poverty issues in the Ministry of Healing, she's talking about that people are oppressed by you know, addictions, by uh, all sorts of things that debase humanity. And I certainly see that as connecting with that, you know, that great controversy theme, as you term it, uh, that, you know, that people are ground down, people are devalued, and the church is called to, you know, re, as I use the term, re-knit re that web of humanity as a way of uplifting, you know, and some of that's involving, I think, reorganising society, but there is a spiritual element definitely as a part of it as well. Thank you. Have you come across any evidence that the Adventists in the mid-19th century lobbied the United States government or local governments on the anti-slavery issue or later on the anti-alcohol issue? As I said, I haven't spent a lot of time going into the specific issues. Um, and probably the biggest one I've read, the biggest study was the one I quoted with Ad, you know, Adventists and the Civil Rights Movement, which traces through a lot of the development, particularly for, during the Civil War and the, the days of the abolition of slavery. Um, in a way, they kind of came a little bit too late to that issue sort of slavery because the church was still trying to work out what they were on about in the 1860s. I mean, we only formed as an organisation in 1863, so we were still... While there were issues, and primarily they were probably self-interested during the Civil War, particularly focused on people that didn't want to go away and fight. Um, so there were issues there where they were making representations to government in that context. Uh, so a lot of, particularly Ellen White's writings, come after the Civil War, and particularly in the context of guiding the work amongst, in, you know, in the South, which was a different missionary field from northeastern United States, and how they address those kind of issues, and and as I mentioned, she kind of takes a pragmatic approach to that, working within the restrictions or the within the prejudices of society without necessarily endorsing them or and seeking to undo them but not necessarily in that in that in that instance in a radical way that would have impaired the progress of the church uh, you know basically if they'd gone into the south in the 1890s for example and tried to set up you know, desegregated churches they would have been run out of town very quickly and so there's kind of that balance there between saying this isn't particularly how society should be ordered but we have to work within it to uplift those people who are excluded. So somewhat pragmatic approach. Uh, certainly there are statements from Ellen White about using our voice and our votes and some of those kind of things to, to have, a, 
have a say on the issues of the day, but yeah, I can't give you any specifics for your actual question. What about a comment on the culture of giving? We've got lots of disposable income, particularly in the West, and say a culture of really serving. <coughs> As in that we don't just buy our way out of our focus on justice. And I think that's, I think that's there. I think we, you know, her emphasis on personal service, you know, um, right, it's not just something, you know, giving is good, we have, you know, that's one way we can support the work of, uh, you know, the progress of justice, the development of others, the relief of the poor. Uh, but she does have a strong focus on a personal relationship. I mean, particularly when you look at some of the more evangelistically focused um, things, that's about building personal relationships and connecting with the poor and the oppressed and the sick and the and those who mourn. That we need to, you know, we need to be with them uh, in their uh, in their sufferings, in their their challenges. So we, um, yeah, I think that. Giving is good, but that's not really what it's about. Uh, and I think even on what we might talk, call the bigger issues, the idea of um, she's a bit more. I mean, certainly there are program programmatic responses to some of these issues that you know can be funded by others. But she was some of her statements and uh, sort of saying, let's not just put money into this stuff. This is actually the stuff of personal service and personal even with the church community working together in a personal way in their larger community uh, rather than simply saying somebody else is running a program so that's all okay. Yeah? Yeah, um, in our church uh, mission statement or so um, if one gets the impression that you serve others in order to and so on. What were your impression when you studied? Um, was there um, doing working for justice in its own right? Or was it in order to? I would make the distinction, and maybe this is just me at my, trying to read it in the best possible way. Um, so, you know, pick my bias apart, if you will. Um, that we should do it because it's the right thing to do and when we do it there will be a response and a reward. That can, of course, we do everything we do with mixed motivations and um, questioning our own motivations as a worthwhile activity on a regular basis but um, I don't think... It, I would suggest that to, to a large degree the focus on is this is right this is the truth as Jesus would have us live. This is uh, practical Christianity. This is true Christianity. And you know, when people see that, that will be attractive. I think that's probably the best, better way of, the better way of reading it, that it's, it's not done with an ulterior motive, uh, but when we enact the kingdom of God, people want to be part of it. Now, of course, not all people, but it will be. You know, that's a way that we um, make it real, and people will respond. Yeah. 
Could you give us that last quote again? And then justice will come, I think that's important. Where is it from, James? Micah 6.8. Pardon? Micah 6.8. From Micah 6.8, that's right. Yeah. I think that's very important. Walk humbly. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice package. That's why it gets put on posters far too often and we don't stop and think about it enough. Once again, it's a verse that's used in the context of worship and uh, I think that's an important context to remember as well. Yeah. And if you come across any reference there to the Salvation Army, mm. something being said that Alan White said, they do this just as mercy work, leave it to them. Mm. That, that sometimes has been an excuse for us letting our thoughts put that word. Yeah, I actually did some research on that one. <laughs> um, I would actually explain her statements in the context of charity and also perhaps a critique of the Salvation Army for being focused only on the poor. And um, they, yeah, so that I kind of see that their work is, the way I would, would explain from my reading, and I guess in the context of these broader quotations and other material that I've shared this afternoon, I would see that she is saying that we don't need to replicate the work of the Salvation Army because they do a specific welfare work and they do it well, that we, yeah, and as I said, a critique of them being focused only on the person on the street, for example, rather than, you know, there's a chapter in Ministry of Healing on ministry to the rich as well as to the poor. So she's looking at a much more holistic ministry to the world. I don't think that that would, particularly if we look at, yeah, the distinction I made between charity and justice, I don't think that those quotes are an excuse for us not to be focused on justice. And I certainly, in the, in the broader context of what she wrote, I don't think it's an excuse for us not to be involved with charity either. But I do think that she recognised a specific thing that the Salvation Army does. Uh, and, yeah, as I said, a little critical of it for its narrowness, but also that we don't need to compete with them for, you know, we don't need to necessarily set up a rival program or that kind of thing, but nonetheless it's still something that we should do. Those statements are actually given very much in the context of her arguments with Brother Kellogg and um, I think that's something to remember as well because she was trying to argue against some of his big plans that she saw as drawing a lot of resources and finances away from the, the church at the time. So we probably need to see it in the context of a um, historical argument as well. Have we worn you out? <laughs> cool, well thank you for your thoughts and your comments and your questions and I hope that we can continue talking about some of these issues because I certainly am going to. And um, I think, it, as I said at the outset, I think it's an important thing for us as church to do some more work on both thinking-wise and practical, practically. So thank you for your time this afternoon and for the interaction. Just ask you to put your hands together and thank Nathan for his presentation. At this time, I'd like to ask John to come up to give a closing prayer.
Thank you, Nathan. Uh, I always find your sort of presentation, presentations challenging and enlightening. Thank you. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for the opportunities that we have to reflect, to think, uh, to recapture from the past and uh, how you have led sort of our pioneers and the challenges that they have faced. Uh, but above all, Lord, I just thank you that we can reflect how to apply fairness and justice today, not only in ministry, uh, but in the life of the church. Uh, it's not only the reaching out that we need to, in reaching out, we need to extend justice and fairness, seeing the poor, but we need to treat each other with justice and fairness because there are a lot of people hurting in the church. And maybe we need to create an environment of attraction that will help people to realize that there is justice and fairness among us. So we thank you for Nathan's challenges. I just pray that you may bless him, bless his ministry, bless his life. We thank you for his creativity, for his free thinking, Lord. And I just pray that he may continue to challenge others. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.